this is Swampside Chats, a podcast where communists sit down to shoot the shit about current events, history, political economy, and theory. Uh, for this episode, we are joined by Tyler from New Zealand as we discuss the history of the communist movement and its relationship to the indigenous Maori people of New Zealand. In preparation for this conversation, we read two tracks that were sent to us by Tyler. One, published by the Canterbury District of the CPNZ, was titled The Communist Party of New Zealand, 1921-1981, and the other was an essay titled The Veneer is Radical, The Substance is Not, by Evan S. Posha Smith. We were thinking, maybe we can traverse the globe, be true internationalists in a sense, and talk to uh, a citizen from another settler colonial um, republic. Is it a republic? I don't know. Settler colonial um, country that has a much more developed, it seems to me anyway, and you can correct me, much more developed literature on, and, and just a much more developed, like, you know, indigenous nationalist movement. Uh, I don't know to what degree, you know, secret police tried to crush it in the 70s, but it doesn't seem like it was nearly as successful as, you know, the U.S. government against uh, the American Indian movement. So we're inviting on a friend of the show and Kiwi. Is that, is that, is that a weird word, Kiwi? Anyway. No, it's, it's all right. It's not a, it's not a, it's not a slur. Okay. Uh, and friend of the show and Kiwi extraordinaire, Tyler. Hey, Tyler. Hey, um, it's only a slow if you suggest that Peter Jackson is a good person. Okay. All right. I would never suggest such a thing. Um, Thank you. <laughs> why shouldn't I keep it? Wait, wait. Why? Why is Peter Jackson bad? Union busting scumbag. Ah, uh, okay. Right. He's yeah. got like waiters there, isn't it? This whole fucking thing. Yeah, yeah. Waiter workshop. Um, what no, he he bankrolled uh the the right wing mayoral candidate who rolled the Labour mayor uh, of Wellington in the last election entirely because he was angry about developments in his suburb. Like, it was just a spite thing. Jesus. But also, he hasn't done a good movie since the end of Lord of the Rings franchise, and I'm very much of the camp that he stopped being good after he stopped releasing, like, D-tier splatter films in the 80s. So, not a loss. Yeah. Yeah, that sucks. See, like that's why the reason like George Lucas is cool because like he builds like homeless shelters like near his like rich neighbors to piss him off. You know, that's like the opposite. Yeah, he's the he's the Jimmy Carter of megalomaniac puppeteers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> anyway, so Tyler, you know, so we asked Tyler, what what should we read about Kiwi communism and Maori liberation? And you sent us this article, Potential Allies of the Working Class, The Communist Party of New Zealand and Maori, 1921 through 52 by Kerry Taylor. Yep. Why, did, why this article? Who is, uh, because there's not a hell of a lot written about this particular subject, a fair amount written about both Maori activism and you know, sort, of, sort of Maori politics in general and a lesser amount, but still enough about communism in New Zealand, 
the, that little intersection there, which is incredibly important to any kind of po- communist politic in this country, not very written about. And this chapter is one of them. Um, Kerry Taylor, for context, is one of the kind of uh, major academics writing about the Communist Party generally. So fairly good authority, at least from the communist side of it. And you kind of can't really do any kind of uh, work on the radical left in this country unless, to a certain extent, you are writing about the context of how that interacted with um, Maori politics as well. It's, it's kind of not possible. It's a small country. Before we started recording, you know, I had made some comments about how in the piece it had said that, well, the CPUSA was much better on issues of race than the CPNZ during this period. And of course, what popped into my head is, okay, issues of race, sure. But for like indigenous tribal peoples, I I can't even think of anything the CPUSA did. You made an interesting point that there's a parallel, not just with the indigenous like settler situation uh, in the United States with, you know, New Zealand and Maori, but also with African-Americans um, can you speak to that a bit? So the, the Māori population did decline very precipitously. And at the beginning of the previous century, it was in the low tens of thousands. And a lot of Pākehā subscribed to this theory that Māori were dying out. And the role of Pākehā in New Zealand is to fluff the pillow and make sure it was as painless as possible because it was an, an inevitable process. And so By Pākehā way, is, is uh, Maya, Whitey, basically? Yeah, yeah. Pākehā refers to white people, but contextually it's usually referring to white locals who are, who are beyond like first-generation migrants. Like a first-generation migrant will still get referred to by whatever country they arrived here from. Pākehā usually refers to Anglos and more broadly usually refers to people who are kind of a couple generations in in terms of their family. Yeah, like by the 40s that theory had died out. And at this point in time today, Māori make up 15% of the, the New Zealand population, which has to be one of the highest in terms of like an indigenous populace in a settler colonial country. Well, then I know for sure, but it's got to be it's got to be up there. The contradictions with like the Indians and like the blacks in the United States, it's a very different situation, you know, like with with African-Americans, because it was integrated, they were integrated directly into the mode of production, like from a Marxist standpoint there's probably a more clear path in terms of, you know, what to do with them politically. Right. But whereas the American Indian, they, they're, they were basically outside of it. They had their own economy basically in different forms. You know, some were more settled into agriculture than others, but because they were outside of it, it was much harder to, you know, this is a similar problem that, that, you know, Marxism in the 20th century had with peasants, right? What do you do in, with mode of political theorizing that deals with classes internal to capitalism when capitalism isn't coming into contact with cultures and modes of production outside of it. You know, I mean, typically the kind of answer has been win the class struggle in the core and then just kind of peacefully integrate those outside sections over a long period of time. But when you haven't won the class war, you need to build up forces and you need to make sure that those outside sections aren't basically brought in as scab labor against an organized working class, you know, it, that's, that tends to be the, the interest that, you know, the working class, they will basically take, which might not obviously have the greatest appeal to those outside sections that have their own particular interests, right? This seems to be 
this seems to be something that, that New Zealanders were grappling with in their own way with the Maori. But the questions of, yeah, how the working class movement relates to colonization has been one of the major problematics of the 20th century. Because one thing that the article mentions is how a lot of the pressure to integrate the Maori into the Communist Party was coming from Moscow. It wasn't really a regional thing. Like Moscow really wanted, part mostly you know, for geostrategic reasons, to have like higher, like higher indigenous representation in the party. Um, and it seemed like they were always just kind of struggling. And they wanted it seems like they wanted it to happen, but they could just never really get anything major going. They'd get like one or two guys and right back to like Moscow, like, hey, man, we got some guys like check it out. And then eventually those guys left and then they'd have to, you know, try and do reach out again. And it seemed to like like often happens with things. Other aspects pop up that grab attention and that sort of gets shuffled to the side. Maybe this is like too much of a generalization, but um, and uh, there's a book in the United States that's foundational for American Indian movement called uh, Custer Died for Your Sins by Vine Deloria Jr. And in it, he claims that the method of oppression for African-Americans was a sort of exclusion from institutions, whereas the method of oppression for uh, Native Americans was a sort of forced assimilation and inclusion. And this is, of course, after you know, outright extermination. This reaches its apex in like Indian boarding schools that are sort of doing the cultural continuation of genocide by trying to mayo brain the indigenous population. I guess I bring that up to sort of throw to you. How does oppression of Maori by settlers work? The answer is probably it's both of the things you described. There's a lot of quibbling over whether you could describe what happened in New Zealand as genocide, because there was never a war that had the objective of wiping out or exterminating or destroying entirely. Um, like a particular iwi, which for Americans translates probably best to tribe. There's you know, local, local circumstance here, but it's probably closest to think of that as tribe. Um, but in saying that, the dispossession of land, which especially got going after sort of in the immediate aftermath of the most serious colonial wars that happened here, seized such an enormous amount of land that there was no way it could do anything but cause a very significant degree of destitution. Um, and the what used to be called the Māori Wars sort of fell out of favour. They're now usually called the New Zealand Wars or sometimes the Land Wars. They, like the direct confiscations that happened as a result of them, where confiscations did happen, Absolutely, we're talking about a few thousand acres or hectares um, compared to hundreds upon hundreds of thousands that were done by legislative means later on down the line. So like in the 1860s onward for a couple decades, you had a whole bunch of legislation that was passed that was essentially passed to make it so that it would be increasingly difficult to near impossible for the kind of communal land ownership or stewardship is probably a better way of putting it, make that essentially impossible, uh, both to integrate with the rapidly developing colonial state and also just to continue, as well as that it basically disenfranchised nearly all Māori because very few of them were living in the kind of property that was recognised by the state, which, again, is the exact, is, it's the same legislation that was used to disenfranchise most workers as well. So like you have that 
but you also do have so this kind of this process of dispossession and also an attempt at essentially cultural genocide in the later 19th century with essentially just the banning of a hell of a lot of cultural practices and cultural organization that continued until surprisingly recently. I've got plenty of friends whose parents were beaten senseless by their teachers for speaking to Rayo in schools because it was banned until I think the sixties. So these are like people I know, like people's parents I know. It's very much very recent history. But at the same time, you also have this view that develops among Pakeha, especially polite society, that Māori are in Māori are just going to naturally integrate with Pakeha. So you have kind of this incoherent thing where in some places you had outright segregation. In other places, you had this big effort to try and bring in various uh, in, you know, various Māori leaders or important figures into the colonial state. Um, by that point, by the time I'm talking about early 20th century, it was cease, slowly ceasing to be a colonial state and starting to be a kind of country in and of itself. But you have both happening, which has, uh, you know, it kind of led to unique uh, instances of kind of the worst of both worlds. It, wa- it wasn't great. It wasn't great. And yeah, I, I, probably the best exa- best thing to say about that is that people's parents, I know, not grandparents or anything like that, parents I know, were beaten for speaking to Reo in schools when they were kids in the 60s. And stuff like that was still happening, although it wasn't really institutionally accepted for years after that as well. So yeah, and, and on top of that, you had this process of attempting to proletarianize and integrate a fair chunk of Māori society, which did lead to uh, there are a lot of industries that are basically Māori-dominated in terms of their workforce, and that's kind of continued to be the case up until fairly recently. And it is definitely the case that Māori workers earn less on balance and their life expectancy is lower on balance and etc., etc., all of the things that I'm sure anyone in the U.S. recognizes happening to Indigenous people there as well. That, that kind of dovetails with a consideration that comes up in a few of the pieces we read. Now, you also did send us some other background texts. And one of the pieces that comes up with uh, Maori, which doesn't have that much of an analog in the United States, is... The idea that there's like a, a bunch of like, how do I put this? So not only do you have like a Maori proletariat like working for settlers, you also have something, I don't know if it's a big bourgeoisie, but you know, like a sort of a section of like Maori capitalists. Is that right? Yeah, um, it's obviously not huge, but the most recent estimate, which I think is from 2018, is that Combined Māori assets are worth about $50 billion. Um, New okay. Zealand, which is off the top of my head, maybe $35 billion US, 35 to 40, something like that. Um, I obviously don't just have the exchange rate on mind, but something along those lines. It's quite significant. And today, as a result of something called um, the Waitangi Tribunal, which was a tribunal set up to address historic grievances since the Treaty of Waitangi, which is kind of one of the founding documents of a founding sort of relational document between the Crown and uh, various iwi. Not all of them signed it, but a great many did. Uh, As a result of that process, you have um, a certain amount, not a huge amount, and certainly not like 
a majority or anything like that, but a significant enough amount of capital that is now held in various iwi trusts or iwi-run uh, private entities or just private entities that are run by individual Māori people. Um, and that, yeah, I don't think there's... That's definitely something that seems unique to New Zealand. And as a result of that, especially probably over the last 20 to 30 years, probably closer to 20, there's a visible... There's an increasingly visible class divide within Māoridom, essentially where you have people who are pushing towards a more collective vision for how those assets should be distributed and people who, well, control the assets for a start, but people who have this idea that essentially trickle down, but for Māori people. Yeah, the industries like fishing, uh, forestry, and a bunch of others you have like quite significant private assets and a significant amount of capital that are in the hands of various iwi and various Maori business owners. Yeah, because in the United States, like famously, you know, there are indigenous-owned like casinos that have some redistributive, sometimes have some redistributive like effect to the tribe in general, but it's not not really like a huge factor in how the overall dynamic you know plays out that seems like to be that seemed to be a pretty unique feature and you're saying that's only really come up in in the last few decades um i mean you to get like a full grasp of it you have to go back a long time there were a number of tribes especially in the north island um i think around hawks bay especially who were engaged in what is now referred to as multi-tribal enterprise but basically were doing the beginnings of mercantile capitalism um there were essentially shipping companies although they weren't run as companies they were run as as tribal assets at a point in time where you're talking about tribes that are still entirely independent um, this is the 1850s we're talking about before the most severe fighting of the New Zealand wars in the legislation that came in waves after that. But you are talking about some iwi were actually building up quite significant proto-capital assets, essentially, and, and shipping, especially. So that's something that has a history, but in terms of the assets being developed today... It's largely related to um, sort of the end of all of the kind of official above-board suppression of Māori culture and society over the last 60 to 70 years, and then Waitangi Tribunal, which gave away for certain grievances to be addressed, but also came at a time when... um, sort of the quote-unquote neoliberal revolution was occurring, and you had kind of the freer ability to shuffle capital around and for new capital like that to be developed. Okay, so the Maori bourgeoisie, to the extent that they exist today, not really related to the older enterprises and are more sort of a woke result of the neoliberal turn? There's definitely an element of that that's pretty close to that. But there's there was like basically this kind of uh, significant promise in the late 80s and early 90s um, that like the shifting of assets and the return of some land 
and sort of the regranting of some traditional iwi rights to certain parcels of land was actually going to result in essentially a trickle-down economic boom for right. Māori and, you know, resulted in a lot of these organizations starting to be set up. Funnily enough, a text that was really important to the development of Māori political theory and generally considered to be one of the most important political texts written in New Zealand called Māori Sovereignty, written in 1980 by a woman called Donna Aratare, uh, she went on after this to become a leading MP in the ACT Party, which is our libertarian party, and which became famous, quite oh. famous, especially over the last, especially in the 2000s, um, became quite famous for Māori bashing. This was after she, I think she, uh, I think there was a fraud scandal that saw her um, leave the party and cease being an MP. But it's a very wild political trajectory that I think a lot of people overseas probably wouldn't even understand. But sort of Donna Awatare's story is kind of part of that story about sort of uh, indigenous politics here being anything but a monolith and sort of a universal Māori interest being, you know, not something that you can really reasonably say exists carte blanche without exceptions across Māoridom. Right, because it's not to say that there's no, like, disparities in income between, you know casino like managing you know like in, indigenous people in the united states or like you know your average like urban urban uh, american indian income or income on the reservation because there certainly is but if i had to say it just seems like much more of a monolithic interest by tribe than what you see or or what or what you're articulating with Murray. This seems much more like, seems like a more complicated situation in a way. There are, there are some Maori writers who have been pushing the idea of a kind of Maori, we had a thing here called the Business Roundtable, which was like our big business lobbying group, that there was kind of a de facto Maori roundtable um, and like a, a Maori bourgeois had developed, which was now like its interests were now separating from the interests of working Maori. Um, which, of, of course, is true between worker and bourgeois, but that it was now happening to a significant extent. And stuff along, that, along those lines has been written, written within and without of Māoridom for probably the last 20 years now, mm. probably a little bit longer. Part of this is not just to be like critical, because like, if you have autonomy in a capitalist society, you know, if your people has autonomy, it means you're going to start seeing that kind of differential happen. It's sort of intrinsic to Lenin's conception of national autonomy, you know, to, what, to whatever extent it actually ends up. Translating to politics, it's to allow peoples to have their own autonomy, and then they can develop class struggles within themselves. <laughs> that is kind of close to, you know, looping back to the chapter that I got used to read. That is kind of what Moscow was pushing essentially in order to bring the CPNZ's practice with Māori in line with what most sort of common turn aligned parties were kind of expected to do anyway, because that was the Leninist position. It probably for the better, because in the early days, the CPNZ didn't really know what to do. And that's partly because for the first few years, like the CPNZ was essentially directly run by the Communist Party of Australia. It took a while to properly set up. 
So there is an ex- there is a certain level of leeway you have to give for the fact that it was kind of a tiny organization. But very soon, especially by the late 1920s, when you're getting towards 10 years of the party's existence and sort of five-ish years of the party being able to run entirely autonomously, there was a pretty obvious problem starting to arise there. Yeah. The, now, so the CP, the Communist Party of New Zealand, seems to be pretty much a product of the Bolshevization period, the period of export of you know the Leninist Party Forum from Moscow throughout the world. Before that, you had the Labour Party of New Zealand? Yeah, but only by a few years. Oh. Yeah. Um, the Labour Party so, of New Zealand that exists today was founded in 1916. Was there a previous Labour Party, or is that the one? Yeah. Um, I mean, there was a Labour Party that existed for like a year, a few years prior, but you had those kind of Labourite working-class parliamentary parties coming into existence and standing in elections and sometimes getting seats and whatnot since about the mid-1900s. And the CP was very much a Bolshevization party, perhaps one of the most direct Bolshevization parties. But in saying that, a big part of the reason why it came into existence uh, was that um, the Socialist Party which preceded all of this, they dated back to 1901 or two or three, something like that, had basically begun to rip itself apart and the bulk of the party had merged into the Labour Party with a different group called the um, Social Democratic Party, which itself had resulted from various internecine fights within the Socialist Party. Um, And a big part of that is that there was this period from 1908 to 1913 of very intense class struggle probably the most intense class struggle this country's ever seen. Um, I was talking to you a little bit about it beforehand. This culminated in something called the Great Strike in 1913, which was largely watersiders who, for the longest time, have always been the most militant people in this country, the most militant sort of section of the working class in this country. And that saw about 13,000 workers go on strike and get into some extremely significant clashes Um, There were gunfights, but the worst fighting actually happened without guns. That was between a group called, who came to be known as Macy's Cossacks. Macy was the prime minister at the time. And Macy's Cossacks, who ironically Macy wasn't actually a huge fan of, but he kind of tacitly accepted them, were volunteer farmers' sons who had come in from the countryside with their horse and with a big wooden club and would basically cavalry charge through picket lines to to break them and open them up. So, like, you had this, and the failure of the Great Strike is what laid the ground for everyone be- for a f- significant chunk of people who had been amenable to revolution beforehand deciding that they had to go through Parliament. And so, like, that's, that's the backstory. The CPNZ is initially founded as the remnant Wellington branch of the Socialist Party. Okay. Yeah, so, like, the, the CP has, like, a, there is a reason it exists in the way it exists, but it's still very much a a Bolshevik party, by party. Yeah, I guess I'd be curious to know too about, yeah, like, because I was saying how this piece, the Maori are sort of mostly expressed in the negative, and I'd be curious to see what their self-originated political demands and engagements were, like formations were, in contrast maybe to the Communist Party at the time, because I'm not really sure. I mean, obviously, aside from the kind of inherent antagonism between, like, the workers' movements um, and indigenous peoples, uh, or the difficulties of like making alliances between the working class and other classes, or 
nationalities or sectors or whatever. Um, that would, would probably be a factor, but I'd be curious to see like what what they were pursuing specifically politically that might not have you know uh, gelled exactly with what the Communist Party was trying to do in New Zealand. Yeah, I, I just get the vibe from this article that they just didn't fucking talk to Maori for the most part. I mean, that's uh, always very possible. <laughs> like that, it was it was they saw themselves as the party of the working class, and by working class they mean the settler working class. They were not thinking about, you know, Maori as part of the working class at all. But they tried to, like, publish stuff in their, you know, in their literature. But I think what you were, what, what you, I thought you were going to say was like just, like, literally not talking to people. Because that does seem to be a recurrent uh, problem. I know that there's, like, this meme on my timeline on Facebook where it's the, it's the classic Andrew Wyeth painting of, like, the lady in the field who, you know, is like her legs don't work or whatever in the house the distance. And like the lady is labeled um like a socialist. The house is like socialism and in between the field is talking to people. <laughs> what say you, Tyler? <sighs> to an extent, yes. Just flat yes. Um it's kinda hard to explain without going into the developments of Maori politics going back to about the again and back to about the eighteen fifties. Um because wow. that's kind of when the contradictions got to the point where there had to be new developments in Māori society to um, not even just compete with, just find a way to live alongside uh, settlers. So you had this thing called the Kingitanga movement that was founded in the 1950s. The absolute, absolute TLDR of that is that it was the Māori king movement and it was the idea that you had to have something equivalent to a state uh, that the crown could directly negotiate with so that they couldn't piecemeal ship away a different iwi independently. So that was founded in the 1850s. I don't have an exact date on mind, but I think it's about 1853. And you had the first Māori king elected from among the tribes. The king movement, the kingitanga still exists today. There is still a Māori king today who has a doesn't have an official position within the New Zealand state, but is viewed as a very important figure within Maori society generally, especially by the state, um, as like a representative figure. But anyway, the Kingitanga huh. did actually have a pretty significant area that was essentially just under their control in uh, the central North Island in the Waikato, um, and also on the east coast, on the on the west coast. Sorry, but the Kingitanga basically got drawn into the wars in the mid 18 in the early to mid 1860s there was a war called the Taranaki war um in, in a region just called Taranaki in 1860 through 61 62 and then later on uh the governor invaded the Waikato and and staged an actual very very big war against the Kingitanga um the Kingitanga managed to mobilize 4000 troops during that which is insane um but the British brought in 18,000 soldiers. It was actually the single, at that point in time, it was the single largest military deployment anywhere in the British Empire. Um, Jesus. And at the largest wow. battles, especially Gate Par, the amount of artillery that the British brought to bear, uh, a, a par for, for reference, is roughly a um, fortified village. And especially during the wars, you are basically just thinking of a New Zealand equivalent of a fort that could withstand artillery and small arms fire. 
But at Gate Par, which was the largest of those battles, the British brought one of the largest artillery bombardments they'd ever mounted to bear on Gate Par and failed. They didn't breach the fortifications because they were using coldy trees and coldy <laughs> trees are like if concrete grew naturally. Um, That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Gate Par was one of the single greatest defeats the British... was the single greatest defeat the British had in New Zealand. Um, 85 soldiers died, 80 soldiers and five officers, I think, to like a couple of Māori. Um, because they tried to storm the part and there was a whole bunch of like covered pits and sort of secret hidden away rooms and um, shooting galleries and trenches that uh, the fighters who had remained in the par were in. And they basically ran straight over them and then got shot at and stabbed from below, turned around and ran away. And that was gate par. <laughs> um, so yeah, extraordinary, like the, Maori tactics, especially in the 1860s, were extraordinary. There are a lot of people who argue that they were the ones who pioneered trench warfare and the fortified warfare of World War One because they were using trench, like advanced trench works and sapping techniques huh. that the British didn't even adopt for quite a few years after that. Um, but anyway, so the King's Tonga was... This has been hardcore history on the Swamp Chance. Yeah. I mean... <laughs> so anyway, yeah. the King Tonga, which continues to this day... Um, retreated to an area now known as King Country and continued to exist essentially as a fairly major force in Māori politics. Um, in the 1870s and 80s, there's a switch to the, the war's end in the mid-1870s. Late 1870s and 80s, there's a switch to pacifism. There is a pacifist village called Parihaka, which does basically like a plowing campaign, pulling up like fence, po- like boundary posts and whatnot, getting sort of tussling with surveyors, but otherwise being entirely peaceful. Government sends an enormous force of soldiers to go and arrest everyone, which they do, and a whole bunch of them wind up being prisoners of war. And a lot of people have argued that they became de facto slave labor, and there's definitely an argument to be had that they did. Um, some of them made it this as far south as here, and New Zealand is a big country, so for them to be like force marched and shipped all the way down to. Dunedin is enormous. Um, but anyway, that kind of pacifist resistance begins to subside because the state literally just smashes it by force of arms. And at the very end of the 1890s and into the 1900s, you have there's something called the Māori Parliament, which is attempted. Again, this is another attempt at an institution which can maintain a certain degree of autonomy and work with the Crown directly. The parliaments kind of subside pretty quickly. But by the 1910s and 20s, you have the Kingitanga still exists, and uh, the chapter mentions that the CPNZ did that try and work with the Kingitanga. There are various independent individual iwi that they try and get in touch with, that they actually begin to have some, some success with by the 1950s, but got in the 30s, they fucked up entirely and didn't get anywhere. Um, and there was also this thing called the Ratana Church, which I mentioned before was a, still exists today. There are about 50,000 believers off the top of my head who were still tied to the church, but that was a um, syncretic and syncretic Christian belief that also became a pan-Iwi political movement and actually managed to get some MPs elected to parliament before they made an alliance with the Labour Party. And that alliance continues, although it's sort of disintegrated and degraded, um, that alliance with the Labour Party continues to exist in some form to this day. So, like, when... The CPNZ are trying to do this. There are a handful of very important political and religious institutions that are trying to trying to form an institution that can unite a large body of Māori to work with the New Zealand state and the British Crown 
on their terms as a whole, rather than being divided into smaller iwi and also hapu as well, which is a, a sub-tribal formation. Um, and sometimes, like, individual hapu would come into clashes with the state. But to have, like, this kind of broad-based political movement that could fight for their own interests. And at that point in time, their own interests not only meant, you know, land, because there was still land yet to be confiscated. They still controlled a fair bit of territory across various iwi and whatnot, but also cultural rights was a huge one because mm-hmm. Maori culture had been all but banned by the state at this point. Yeah, so yeah, it sounds like, yeah, they were basically, maybe in contrast to the United States, able to organize more cohesively politically and militarily and were able to maybe like defend themselves better, you know, and maybe secure like some sort of place within the society um, that wasn't one of just kind of, you know, utter kind of like destitution, you know? Yeah, essentially, you know, there's a nation built out of all the different tribes. Whereas to this day in the United States, you know, the sort of intertribal like resentments are and can be an impediment to organizing. Yeah, the U.S. government was very good at playing like divide and conquer. Divide and imperio. Yeah, I mean, like to this day, you still get some degree of like iwi rivalry, but as far as I'm aware, it generally doesn't get in the way of iwi who are actually taking some kind of, for example, tribunal claim or having some other kind of clash or, you know, just some kind of issue to be resolved with the state. It, It doesn't really get in the way of that at all maybe the new zealand state tried at some point to leverage those rivalries but i'm not i'm not aware of it personally Mm. um it was sometimes more so that there were just individual iwi who were a bit dissociated by territory and of course when you're going way back in the day also just by communication right um and wound up not really having any way to resist some kind of land confiscation or having a traditional village uh, burned down to make way for some kind of um, uh, public work, or, you know, etc., etc. But I don't think there was any particularly successful attempts to leverage into tribal rivalries. You going to say something, Jake? I was just going to, well, I don't know, I was thinking like, okay, so they have a king, right? Technically, New Zealand is under the crown, right? But... As is increasingly becoming exposed, the British Crown are a bunch of like vampire pedophiles, right? So, if they could somehow expose, you know, the like perversion of the British Crown, then maybe their guy could take over New Zealand. Okay. And it could be a constitutional monarchy under okay. that guy. I like the cut of your chip, Jake. Yeah. I think that I'm just I think spitballing so, here. I think there was actually like an old history book along those lines. Um, but. The thing with the early Kingitanga is that there wasn't really a desire to just... And for like a lot of this period, there wasn't really a desire to just carte blanche expel all of the settlers. There was a desire to find some way to get rid of the negative influence of the crown and the colonial mm. government. And because of that, there were clashes, a lot of them, hell of a lot of them, between like individual settler families or rural towns or whatnot and local iwi. But like, the Kingitanga was kind of existed in a defensive way in that sense. Um, they, I mean, if I went back, they had their own newspaper. So if I went back and like did a big deep dive into their newspaper, um, maybe there, I would probably find a bunch of articles and whatnot calling for just the carte blanche expulsion of the British. 
but definitely the sort of broad strategy was to make something that could cooperate, well, not cooperate, but that could stand up politically as a unified force to further attempts at disenfranchisement. Weird thing, actually, uh, someone I follow on Twitter who's been ringing, he's been reading a lot of the old Kingitanga paper um, because it's on the single papers pass that just has like a record of all, all of New Zealand's old newspapers. Apparently there were some Māori in the 1860s who found out about the Haitian revolution and were writing about the experience of Haiti and how that could apply to New Zealand. Now, there's someone, there's literally just someone I follow who's like a um, sort of socialist Māori activist um, on Twitter who was saying this. But the wild thing is that I think in a way you can kind of see a parallel in the decision to go with like a king to match the queen of England and mm. the like Toussaint Louverture siding with the French crown early on in the Haitian revolution against quote unquote revolutionary force, like quote unquote French revolutionary forces. I, I don't know this, this is literally something that's been entirely news to me recently. And there's a, again, there's an enormous amount of work that still needs to be done both for Maori history generally and for, um, the kind of uh, understanding the kind of class ruptures and social unrest that's occurred in New Zealand, going right right back to the first conception of a New Zealand and, and the first idea of we're going to send a bunch of settlers here and make something new. Yeah, and just to clarify about the Haitian, us Americans call it the Haitian Revolution. Um, <laughs> <you know. laughs> like, there was a sort of streak of republicanism to Toussaint Louverture, but like after he gets killed and Dessaline takes over and the ultimate settlement that ends up happening is something like a monarchy and the thought that comes out of it actually ends up saying something along the lines of republics are settler institutions are, you know, um, white people institutions. The only way you're going to get justice for people of color is to set up a monarchy and have a king that you could directly appeal to. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, actually, the first Haitian empire, actually, was Emperor Desaline. <laughs> you're, you're 100% correct. So, <laughs> yeah, the this I was sort of horrified to come across these arguments because that's the strain of, how do we say this, you know, anti-colonial thought that I think Stalinism ends up really articulating. That, like, okay, we said it's a... a United Socialist Republics, but you know, republicanism, republicanism, republicanism. We need a monarch basically to appeal to in order to get like, you know, we n- none of this democracy crap. <laughs> like we're paying lip <laughs> service to it, but fuck it, we need a big mustache that we can appeal to for justice. Um, anyway, you got a big mustache. I'm looking at the third Maori king. Like, yeah, that's he's got like big 19th century ass mustache. He, he looks, I don't know. He looks like a samurai or something. It's pretty incredible. Oh, man. Um, and it's that's kind of where it's weird that the, that the CPNZ's attempts kind of fell flat, in, especially in the 30s, because uh, like the late 20s and 30s, because there were more significant attempts in the 1940s during that kind of patriotic United Front era, um, the war with fascism, etc., to kind of mobilize... The entire the CPNZ's view was that the entire country had to be mobilized um, to destroy right. fascism, and there was 
a much more significant attempt at engagement to get a lot of Māori on board, which is interesting because a lot of uh, the more conservative forces in the Māori political uh, world a little, a little, a little earlier on, um, going back to the early days of World War One, had one of their big fights was to allow Māori to go and fight in the world wars and prove that they could stand up essentially next to the white man as, you know, that to prove that they had a place in this country um, and that they had this place in New Zealand that couldn't be ignored. So like, it, it's strange that it's strange to a certain extent that they f- failed so much, but at the same time, even though, you know, some of the positions that the CPNs had held were incredibly radical for a more, mostly almost entirely Pākehā organisation, it's also very easy to see why it failed and see how they just couldn't quite get themselves to figuring out a way to engage positively. Yeah, yeah let's, let's talk about that because, so basically, for this period of time that's being talked about, the high point of the Communist Party's engagement with Māori is to is during the Popular Front period, where they're like one nation. Let's all go fight the fascists, uh, you know, to help defend New Zealand's national interest. Yeah, <laughs> um, and it's also worth stating that this is the high point of the Communist Party itself. Mid to late 1940s, immediate post-war era, Communist Party had about 2,000 members, which was, as far as can be told, their highest point. Uh, also, Communist Party was banned, was a proscribed organization during World War II, so it's very interesting that they were able to do this at all. Um, a few wow. years ago, actually, uh, like a farmer out in Northland or something found a cave that had like a secret illegal Communist Party press and like a, like a completely destroyed, falling apart Communist Party press and a bunch of like moldering leaflets on the floor. Um, oh my God. But yeah, they're, they're, they're a pro- essentially a proscribed organization. Wow. And one thing that kind of drove this wedge that really soured attempts, especially though there would have at least been some in the CPNZ who um, would, would have been all but against trying to recruit from Māoridom, uh, was that there are a lot of Māori scabs in the 1951 lockout, which was one of the most important... After 1913, it's probably the, the biggest wave of class struggle in New Zealand. And they pro- I could not imagine that there wouldn't have been at least some in the CPNZ, both rank and filers and you know further up in the organisation, that weren't afraid of the idea that the government was going to find some way to get a bunch of Māori to be strike breakers. Founded in 1921. Yep. Um, 1924 okay. is when it begins to operate independently. Right. That's when the Manifesto to the Workers of New Zealand is issued. Um, so neither that nor the party congresses in the next two years discuss Maori at all. Um, uh, like... A major policy document in 1927 refers to them, but only in the context of 19th century British colonialism. Um, the first reference to the Treaty of Waitangi, how, how do you pronounce that? Waitangi. Yeah. For, the first reference to the Treaty of Waitangi appears in Workers' Vanguard in 1928. And again, British imperialism and coercion, the Maori were cheated by the British. Um, and then only under communism is the right of small nations 
and quote colored or backward people upheld and respected. Um, and then in late 1928, same year, New Zealand's delegate to the Comintern Congress in Moscow, um, his name is Dick Griffin, made several contributions to the debate I'm reading here on the colonial question without mentioning the Maori in his speeches. The 1931 Manifesto of Immediate Demands is silent on Maori. Then there is a, there's a best-selling publication called Money, Power versus the People, which was, you know, was relatively widely read in 1938 general election. No mention of the Maori. Um, And there's an explicit discussion of land ownership in a 1939 pamphlet, New Zealand for the People. No mention of Maori land grievances, only a sort of fighting spirit of a historical people. There were some attempts to express support for Maori in official documents, at least in a draft. There's a draft resolution on the national question in 1935 and a conference that allows for the right of Maori to be educated in their own language at the expense of the state and, you know, court cases involving Maori defendants to be conducted in the Maori language. And 1946, the party suggested, I guess that's the forties again, but anyway, 1946, the party suggested that Maori be taught alongside English in native schools. Every teacher in Maori schools should be obliged to speak the Maori language. There's also, um, 1935, there was, it was decided that the party must defend the right of the Maori people to form an independent Maori state with its own territory, if they so desire. Um, so that, that was, you know, something like a meaningful statement. I just, before I suggested that there wasn't anything meaningful until 1949. Yeah. And that, that really goes back to this view that was incredible, like, it was New Zealand sort of high, like Pākehā high society where this idea was being coalesced and whatnot, but it was extremely widespread amongst basically, or not basically all Pākehā, but probably most of them, that the reason you didn't really have to think about Māori too much was that they were a vanishing people. That like it was a very genuinely held, and held with some degree of sadness, even though like, hey, you could put a stop to this. <laughs> you could just put your front foot out and actually right. try and help, but well, genuinely, genuinely uh, widely held belief that Māori weren't going to be a distinct people within a couple decades. Now, that, it was around the 1930s that that started to subside because it became very blindingly obvious that that wasn't the case. Um, and by the 1950s, like, that idea had vanished entirely. Even by the 40s, that idea was pretty much entirely out. But by the 1950s especially, like, pretty much no one thought that anymore um and that i can't imagine that didn't have a a big part to play i can't imagine that there wouldn't have been a certain logic at play that what we're doing is de facto good for maori not only because you know communism is the liberation of all oppressed people and maori are an oppressed people so therefore don't have to think harder about it but also (laughs) it would almost certainly have been a certain idea at play that you didn't really have to think independently about Māori because they weren't go like they were just going to be proletarians who they weren't going to exist as a distinct people anymore within a few years. Um, and that was probably an enormous like a, you know this this is me sort of going out on a limb here and just speculating, but I could see that being the case and it being an enormous mistake that really hobbled 
attempts of the New Zealand communist movement to figure out how exactly to go about working alongside Māori towards shared goals. And that's something that like, was only in like the 70s when you had an explosion of Māori activism. In the late 60s and 70s, you had an explosion of Māori activism that laid the groundwork for the political scene as exists today. Um, and it was in that period where you started seeing all sorts of leading figures in the movement for, for you know, self-determination, Tino Ranga Tiratanga. Um, there was huge land marches, a very famous one in 1975. There were land occupations in the late 1970s. And at that point in time, you started seeing figures who were important to those occupations and marches who had been or were members of the Communist Party. You started seeing Communist Party figures arguing explicitly and pushing very vociferously for all possible support to occupations. The Auckland Trade Union Council during Bastion Point, which is widely regarded to be the most important and significant of these land occupations, Bastion Point's a place in Auckland. At that point, I might have been a little bit outside what was considered Auckland, but a place in Auckland that Nazi Fetua were occupying because it was going to be developed. And the Auckland Council of Trade Unions put a green ban on it, put a ban on any workers going to develop there, and made quite significant financial donations. And that was partially, or to some extent, the result of CPNZ members within the major unions associated with that council explicitly pushing for that and saying, we have to, absolutely have to support this in any way we can. It's a, a basic obligation of us being a workers' movement that we do this. So by the time you get to the 70s, I think, kind of some of those mistakes were beginning to be rectified and how an association with Māori could go forward was beginning to exist. But again, by that point in time, there'd been an enormous shift, for example, from rural, from Māori and rural areas into the cities. And there was, by that point in time in the 70s, a much, much, much larger urban Māori proletariat that a communist organisation could, you know, sort of figure out how to work with. And I think it is significant that it wasn't just that by that point in time, communist organisations working through trade unions and whatnot were beginning to recruit and have you know, relatively committed members who are Māori in a more than entirely insignificant number. But also, those organisations were genuinely dedicated to supporting land occupations, calls for return of land, calls for the end of cultural suppression, by that point in time, the few towns that did have like full level segregation weren't segregating anymore, so that probably wasn't really high up on the list. But it was very recent memory. It kind of ends on a, the the chapter kind of ends on a hopeful note. We were mentioning this before we started recording, right? And it, it ends on a hopeful note that did actually exist. Yeah, because uh, that's not normally the case when you see a hopeful statement at the end of something that ends in like what. 1980 or something. It's yeah. usually like <laughs> in the 80s. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, the 80s where comedy dreams go to get crushed. Uh, Stranger Things season three, whatever. Like, but this actually happened in New Zealand. Tell us about this. The the new left period here. Um, that kind of explosion. It happened a little bit later. It generally is considered to have started in 1968 rather than having roots earlier. And it was really something that exploded in the early to mid. It's basically the 70s, and it peaked in 1981 with the uh, tour of the South African um, Rugby Union 
in New Zealand, the spring, the 81 Springbok tour, which a lot of people have argued is the closest this country has come so far to civil war, because they were just like, if it was happening today, um, it would just look like something very similar to what's happening in the US, just with like vigilantes, like attacking with hammers and whatnot, each other's side, well, actually mostly just attacking the, the protesters, to be honest. <laughs> By this point in time, you A, had radical sort of multi-liberation politics was being expressed by a younger generation, a younger generation who today are a lot of kind of the elder statesmen of, uh, or statespeople of um, sort of radical and sort of multi-liberation politics. I, I keep trying to transliterate in my head to something that's just English because, you know, I've, I've picked up a little bit of the, the sort of underlying context here. So you have that exploding alongside a massive rise in class struggle from 1968 to a, about 1983, 4, 5, which was the most uh, workers to be involved at any one point in time in various kinds of class struggle, lockouts or strikes or whatever have you. And a lot of people on, on both sides were having a significant degree of crossover. So you had union officials who also happened to be involved in an occupation because that was their iwi doing the occupation or on the other way around you had all of these sort of like multi activists who were getting involved in union shit because that was just their union they were i don't know carpenters or boilermakers or water siders or builders or whatever it happened to be and so that kind of is why for the last like 40 odd years there's been a still very uneasy but much more genuine interaction between the two and you're actually starting to get something that is just a merger of that kind of Maori liberation politics. Tinaranga Tiratanga is the term here, um, but Maori liberation politics and some kind of socialism. Um, 81 was wild. I'm currently working on a chapter for a book that is kind of being written in, in the aftermath of the March 15th massacre, or just on racism in New Zealand. I'm working on a chapter on. Um, Solid, white solidarity groups with like apartheid and southern african regimes that existed here and so like i've been doing all my rereading about 1981 and some of some of the scale of violence that occurred is pretty incredible and a big part of uh, to, tying this back to what we're talking about towards the end of that with the final game of the tour and this final explosion of violence by protesters whose goal from the start was we are going to try and invade a pitch and stop a game as it happens which they did successfully do once, and I think they got one other game cancelled. But the final one, there was a huge, or probably not huge by American standards, but quite sizable clash between protesters and police outside of the stadium it was at in Auckland. And the kind of character of that clash quickly became Māori who were there to fight with the police just for generalised anti-racist reasons, just because like the police have been shitting on them since forever. And it became like fighting with the police on our own terms. Nothing, you know, both because of the anti-racist movement it was part of, like anti-racist solidarity movement, but for our own terms here. And during sort of 1980 and 81, that build up and then that explosion of state violence and sort of fighting back, that was when you finally had within progressive movements that existed alongside Maori liberation, these kind of questions being dredged up of, well, we're putting this enormous amount of effort in to campaign for the end of a racist regime 
thousands and thousands of kilometers away, we need to do that here as well. You know, the, you know there were all sorts of money who were involved in it who were like, what are you going to do for us after this is over? And that's kind of like, I guess the point at which you actually see like a really significant attempt by the communist movement generally and just kind of progressive politics generally to make an effort to find a way to redress the inequities that existed in New Zealand. Okay. Because like, yeah, as far as this article goes, seems like the first like somewhat meaningful statement from the CPNZ is in like a... like the manifesto for the 1949 general election, which like at the end of like a 32 page program has like a single plank about, you know, Maori land claims and social centers and tribal communities. Yeah. Yeah. I guess Iwis um, doesn't say it, but that's what it means and ending discrimination and that sort of thing. Like, so from that point, it takes roughly like, 20 30 years for these movements to actually link up yeah i mean the linkages had always existed but link up in a way where you could coherently say that this is some kind of unified progressive force that ties up a significant sector of new zealand society together um and i I think it's mentioned in the chapter but that would have been hobbled by the fact there were quite a lot of maori strike breakers in 1951 and the 1951 waterfront lockout that smashed the like the water side has never recovered from that and neither did the cpnz cpnz had 2000 odd members in the late 1940s by the end of the 50s they had probably a quarter of that it was absolutely decimated by the 51 lockout and the 51 lockout was an extraordinarily violent period of time um for a few year for a few months in the middle of that lockout, or maybe a shorter period, New Zealand actually resorted to a military government and instituted martial law in some in like some of the worst hit areas. And it's generally considered to be, uh, when people look back on it, it's considered to be like, hey, this was when New Zealand was an actual dictatorship. And that's not a controversial thing to say at all anywhere that new zealand was a dictatorship for a couple months because there was stuff some of the um things the government pushed through in 1951 was that it was illegal for you to give food to the children of watersiders and like some of them were actually getting close to starvation by the end of that um like if you saw like watersiders kids playing in the park if you gave food to them you would be arrested even if if you gave like any kind of aid that was tantamount to committing treason against the state. So, like, 51 left this scar on kind of the psyche of the workers' movement and especially the Communist Party, um, actually more than that, especially the watersiders, but left this scar on the workers' movement that everything involved with it was never forgotten and never forgiven because it was considered to be this extraordinary, egregious, brutal crackdown that was completely unnecessary. And it was a lockout that started it as well. It was okay. a lockout by the bosses. So that's <laughs> so that's significant to this article ending in 52, is that yeah. from the foundation of the Communist Party to this uh, horrific, you know, dictatorial crackdown where uh, Maori were used as strike breakers. Um, or they were used as scab labor rather than strike breakers. Excuse me. Some were, a small number were. Okay, so uh, Maori 
proletarians were used as uh, scab labor. Got it. Yeah, because yeah, that's the, the there's an irony in the title of the article. Potential allies of the working class. Yeah. You know, es- essentially, because I guess the settler workers movement at the time in that situation. And, you know, there are, of course, parallels to the way that um, blacks were used in the United States as scab labor and strike breakers. And, you know, naturally, if that's what's happening, racial tension ends up expressing itself in the workers' movement. It says here at the height of the waterfront dispute, it was noted that the links of the Maori people are even weaker today than in earlier years. In practice, Maori were once again of little more than rhetorical significance, potential allies, but also potential enemies in the class struggle. I don't think I, I don't think I got a sense of how crushing that lockout was and the ensuing considered to be one of the darkest moments in New Zealand history. Yeah, the ensuing dictatorship on yeah. waterfront workers, water watersiders would. Yeah, I'm sure there are plenty of people who don't put it that far and there are like both right-wing and left-wing histories of the 1951 lockout but even a lot of conservatives agree that the extent of what occurred in 1951 was too egregious yeah in in retrospect of course so yeah and like that there's also a it's really significant also for the history of the Labour Party here because the Labour Party absolutely fucked up 1951. They kind of tried to both sides it um, and were real fence sitters. And kind of at that point in time, like this was the beginnings of kind of uh, Cold War, the Labourite, social democratic anti-communism. But I think more so than that, they just didn't want the spirit of 1913 to return. And as far as they were concerned, they absolutely hated that this was occurring, but they probably kind of viewed it as something that had to occur. It's something that kind of like is still written across New Zealand history to this day. Um, the watersider generation is basically gone. There are a couple of people involved in sort of socialisty and progressive stuff who remember going along to marches and whatnot as kids of watersiders, um, but definitely the, like the actual watersiders are mostly mostly gone for all involved it changed the course of new zealand history essentially um in the years from 1951 to 1968 class struggle bordered on reaching point zero that was the up until like sort of the lowest points after the after the introduction of neoliberalism and the smashing of the unions that happened then that was the single lowest point that class struggle ever reached and you got down to like single digit um, strikes happening per year and that sort of thing. Like it, it completely changed the landscape of New Zealand society. That's 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 another like recurring problem. It's like, you know, how do you do, how do you develop political strategy when the bourgeoisie just like unplugs a PlayStation when they're about to lose? You know, what do you we like? What do you do when? I mean, Ingalls talked about this too about how things often come down to a force of arms. So much of it comes down to where the army breaks in a revolution. At some level, that also is kind of the best case for having like a slow buildup, so that you have you know socialists in like every kind of institution of society, so that when those institutions start to decide which way they're going to go, you'll get enough kind of splitting towards the revolution rather than away from it. And at that yeah. point in time, like the army were brought in as scab labor rather than strike breakers, but the army were brought in. 
they were on this they were mobilized against you know New Zealand um, civilians and in a country where a huge part of the the kind of national idea is that this place is a safe haven from the ills of the world and where the ills of the world don't happen that's something that again is kind of written into the national psyche today the same happened in 1981 um the engineer corps were mobilized to put razor wire and stuff around um the stadiums where rugby matches were happening the photos are incredible because they actually like properly fortified the stadiums where rugby matches were happening in 1981 they had rows of razor wire and they rolled out like fucking you know sandbag emplacements and whatnot weirdly enough none of them had guns but it looks like each stadium had been turned into like a makeshift fort in some kind of civil war yeah Um, and i think that probably changed also how the workers movement and maori for that matter interacted with the military because it was veterans who made up a lot of the CPNZ during that high point in the late 1940s before 51. And kind of that met that whole like patriotic war against fascism thing had actually been successful in terms of uh, the communist party's efforts to integrate themselves into the working class. We have something here called the RSA. That's our main veterans association or the, the, the returned servicemen's association is what's called. And that is kind of like a, at this point in time and for decades it's kind of like a legendarily conservative force in New Zealand society tends to be, you know, like quite militaristic and, and generally conservative in the 1940s, plenty of RSA branches had communist party presidents. It was a, like a completely different world to now. Yeah. 1951 kind of just broke all these different things and reshaped how people thought about them. And I guess that probably in, happened again maybe to a lesser extent in 1981 because the army had been to a certain degree mobilized against an anti-racist movement and like the scars of 81 literally still exist today like my mom was a protester when she was like a teenager she was like an early teenager my mom went to the Dunedin protest I know plenty of people who were either at the protests or whose parents went to protests some people had stuff like fingers getting cut off and like their skulls broken and whatnot. They were, they were very, Fucking very hell. Uh, and the worst of it was the worst of it was absolutely pro tour rugby fans when they got let loose, like properly let loose and were really enraged. Um Hamilton, where there was a successful pitch invasion and a game got called off, um, there was a massive riot after the game when the protest was trying to leave. And um stuff like there were like homes being invaded and everyone beaten up. Um, up and down the country that night, homes of like known organizers were like broken into and smashed up. There was one guy in Invercargill, which is like the other end of the country, whose whose house was broken into and everything smashed up. And there was like particular attention paid to destroying everything in his baby's room. <gasps> they like smashed nice. the crib and everything. Um, there was at least one instance yeah. of a car ramming attack during there was like a, a little stall at like a sort of regional town where there was a car ramming attack no one got injured thankfully and yeah in hamilton itself like there was a sort of protester red cross ambulance that a bunch of nurses had volunteered for that got tipped over and all the nurses roughed up there was like a bunch of journalists who huddled in a home with some protesters who had scaled a wall and all the demonstrators tried to break down the wall to like invade this complete rando's home um one of those nurses who was with the ambulance um, in her recollections in one of the major books on the tour, 
remembers that all of the like rugby fans were streaming out and like attacked them and like started trying to push over the van and whatnot were screaming, get them all because they're Jews. So like, Oh, I see. So really bad. New Zealand rugby fans are the black hundreds of New Zealand. (laughs) Yeah. Um, it's got it. And it's Macy's Cossacks. Um, like I've got an American, my best friend down here is an American expat who moved here when he was a kid. Um, he probably recognized from left book. He has like always said to me, like at some point we're going to get Macy's Cossacks, but they're going to be Q pilled. (laughs) Oh my God. Um, like another thing with 81 is that it divided Maori society, like it divided all of society in half. And that there were heaps of Maori pro of pro Lee pro like tour Maori who didn't want politics and sports so you had like moldy rioters beating up moldy protesters and like getting in fights with them and shit when it got really bad wow. so like 80 like yeah like basically everyone i know who remembers 81 was like yeah it divided my family in half there are parts of my family i still don't speak to today and the yeah i could go on about 81 for ages so stop me if you want no no that's fucking fascinating yeah the um so there was these two elite police units that guarded the spring box which you kind of expect um because they were like high priority targets in the government's eyes anyway um and they were they were the red and blue squad the leader of the red squad is a guy named ross murant who wound up becoming a national mp later on um in recent years funnily enough he's he's like become kind of a whistleblower and like a vocal critic of like the internal culture of the police especially after those 2007 terror raids um but in like after the tour he, I don't know of him individually, but some of the Red Squad went to South Africa and were featured by the South African government as heroes of the white race. Yeah. And there were, like, fucking groups like the League of Rights, which are basically, like, Bircherites, but more openly anti-Semitic. Um, Got it. There were groups like the League of Rights who were hosting cabinet members of the in-government at that point National Party at their meetings. Like, 81 was insane, and, the like, there isn't really, a like, a big seminal history book about 81. There's, like, a lot of books that have come out of sort of the police view and the protesters' view, but there isn't any one attempt to make, like, a seminal work. So it's insane to really dig into. Um, the degree to which, like, we probably came close to fucking a New Zealand Boston massacre or something, um, like the the fact that they didn't, there wasn't ever like a um, like rugby supporter who just brought a rifle and shot up a protest never happened, is just like gobsmacking. Like it's insane that that, that didn't happen, and that's like yeah. a through line for a lot of twentieth century New Zealand is all these points where things got really close to the brink. And somehow no one died, or somehow very few people died. Another one, I, I'm getting off topic, but I'm just going to keep going. Um, sorry, but I'm just going to push through this one because I want to get the point out. Um, prior to 1913, like it, it was a period from 1908 to 1913 that that occurred during when we had an arbitration system and that basically broke down around 1908. And so strikes and whatnot started becoming quite frequent again, and you started getting actual clashes and whatnot. Um, in 1912, there was a strike by miners at a place called Waihi. That strike, like a whole bunch of people started traveling to Waihi. It lasted for a few months, I think. There was like a bunch of scab labor that got moved there. And 
the end point of the strike there was a whole bunch of scabs and police stormed the union hall, the miners' hall, uh, like the miners' union hall, and like beat up everyone there. And one guy um, got himself what was beaten to death. There's always, he, he had a handgun, and it sounds like he fired it but didn't hit anyone, but he was just, like, pulled out and beaten to an unrecognisable pulp and is now referred to as the first labour martyr of New Zealand. So, like, and that the thing is that could have gotten even worse because after he was killed, all of the miners and their families fled the town and went and lived out bush for a few months and basically became refugees. But, like, the scabs and whatnot fanned throughout the town and tried to find them all and, like, round them up to do God knows what. And, like, there, there is, like, a, you know, a, a branching version of history in some alternate world where, like, 30 people were just rounded up and they, them and their kids were beaten to death. Like, they're just absolutely right. out for blood at that point. You have all these points in time throughout New Zealand history, which is something that I kind of stress in my work, where it almost got so, so much worse than it was. If you're talking in, like, you know, raw utilitarian terms of just people being injured and hurt and and whatnot, there are so, so many points where it almost got so much worse and then it didn't happen. And a big part of how New Zealand thinks about itself is the fact that it didn't happen means that it was never going to happen and we're fine. Mm. Yeah. There's um, one case after March 15th, which, as you can probably understand, was um, that's going to be like a... Uh, a French Revolution, we don't know. We don't know what the after effect of this is a hundred years down the line sort of event here. Um, but after that, there's been kind of a rediscovery of uh, the existence of like an extreme right wing and fascist politics here. Um, I've done a bit of work on the far right in New Zealand. It's not particularly well researched topic, partly because they were never particularly powerful. Um, but one thing that sort of cropped up when I was digging around is that there was a group of National Front members who lived in a flat in Wellington, I think actually in the Upper Hutt, which is just outside of Wellington, um, who were busted and arrested in 2003 with a whole bunch of gelignite that they were they never said they were planning on using, but it was like 50 kilograms, which is 100-and-something pounds of, like, gelignite and blasting caps and shit they all got like arrested for i I think some of it have been stolen so they got arrested for like various theft and like um charges related to that uh and possibly charges related to like preparing to commit a violent crime or something along those lines Mm -hmm. but that's like a i can find one article about it and that's from the time and a bunch of people i speak to who were like involved in socialist shit at the time were like oh yeah i remember that but like new zealand almost had its own david copeland like, I can't see, like, some of, some of those guys were, like, really fucking unstable who were involved in, like, you're talking about, like, particularly meth-addled um, skinheads who were involved in the National Front at that point, who, some of them could be known to be, like, shockingly, brutally violent people. Um, and they had a whole bunch of explosives that yeah. never explained what they had them for, even though at that point in time they were well-known for going out and beating the shit out of immigrants in the middle of the night and were like, had been openly talking about, you know, we need to use violence as part of our movement. Um, and yeah, that, that, like, that doesn't get talked about at all. People barely, like, I bring it up and no one even remembers that it happened. So, like, New Zealand history is a whole bunch of um, extremely dangerous what ifs. And then we chuckle and say, ha, didn't happen. So it can't happen. 
That, that yeah, that kind of stuff happens here. I remember like after like Timothy McVeigh or whatever, like Gore Vidal used to try and bring up on TV that it, what he, he McVeigh saw himself doing was like punishment for Waco, and he would always get his mic mic cut before he could mention Waco. So yeah, there's definitely a way like these kind of these kind of like narrative turns that could potentially happen, or like these weird um, elements like under like right wing elements like underneath the side are just kind of like papered over, and so everyone's like, yeah, it's fine, it's it's fine. It kind of sounds like the way people talk about the n- nuclear bombs during the Cold War. Like, I mean, the reality is when you look into it, it totally could have popped off. But yeah, there were numerous points where it's like it literally came down to just one guy being like, let's check. Uh, let's check before we launch this real quick. Something that I feel like I, I should bring up uh, because it's probably the closest uh, experiment to making a large scale united like socialists and multi activists and kind of like laborite formation. And that's something that's called uh, the mana movement or the mana party. Okay. Uh, that's based around a guy called um, Hone Hadawira, who was an MP for a while in parliament initially as a member of the multi party, which was a split from labor. They split off in 2004 because labor passed this, wildly unpopular bill called the foreshore and seabed bill that was basically viewed as a new kind of land confiscation like it, it wasn't great but yeah there was like a huge uh hikoi which means march that ended in wellington at the gates of parliament there were like forty thousand people there it was one of the largest of like the it's just one of the largest protests in wellington history but coming out of that was there are some like people in the maori caucus of the labor party split off and formed the maori party and then like a little bit later once they'd gone through a couple elections, this was in about 2004, so their first election was 2005. In 2008, they wound up siding with the National Party and going into coalition with them. And one of their MPs, Hone Hadawira, who's like a veteran, like a real big-name veteran of the 70s, he was in a group called Natamatoa, who were like a radical youth Māori group who were really famous for beating the shit out of a bunch of... Um, uh, engineering students because the engineering students were doing like a like a really racist like a um panther like a kind of not quite menstrual show but similar kind of um racist version of like a haka that was like part of their whole thing engineering students here have generally always been racist but um yeah he's like famous for like going back to that kind of 70s period he founded the mana movement or mana party name was a bit interchangeable and that got a massive amount of buy-in between about 2011 when it formed and he won his by-election to keep his seat. There was also an election in 2011 and he again won his seat back. And 2014, when he lost his seat, um, the election after, that had a huge amount of buy-in from the wider left. Most of the like socialist sects joined heaps of these people who had been involved in something called the Alliance, which was a social democratic split from... a. It would take a bit to explain, but it was basically a social democratic split from the Labour Party in the late 80s. So all of these kind of like social democratic, like Labour, like left Labour parliamentarian kind of like worker organizers, like union organizers and whatnot, and a whole bunch of people who were just involved in varying kinds of progressive organizing, all joined like en masse the Mana Party. Uh... So you just had like this period of a few years, which was about when I was starting to get involved in this stuff. It was like towards the end of my years in high school, who actually managed to put together and for a little while hold together like a quite significant, like several, I think a couple thousand member 
organization that was a, a genuine attempt at bringing together Maori liberation radicals, old school like worker social democrats who have been like completely disillusioned with the Labour Party and the extant, mostly to some in some way or another Trotskyist like socialist sect left. And they worked together surprisingly well. It fell apart in 2014. It would take an entire episode for me to describe what happened in 2014. It was oh, come, very... come on, come on. So that was, that, that was the that... so. You know how Kim.com came and lived here for yeah. ages before he got re- like arrested. He tried as part of his bid to kind of like integrate himself in New Zealand and insulate himself a little bit from um, from like prosecution and um, being extradited. He'd set up a political party called the Internet Party that was very similar to like those old like pirate parties that used to be yeah, yeah. And that actually went into alliance with the Mana Party and they ran together as Internet Mana. So you had this like bizarre ramshackle alliance that included everything from like Silicon Valley tech bros through to like communist organizers who had been involved in like worker struggles in the 70s and shit, all under this one banner. And unsurprisingly, one, they lost. Um, the combined ticket did actually get a little bit higher vote, but not very much. And the thing that was keeping them in was Hone holding uh, a seat in the northernmost Māori electorate, and he lost that seat to um, his his Māori party competitor. I forget who actually took that seat from him, but he lost his seat. And actually, I think he lost it to Kelvin Davis. I think it right away went to a Labour Party guy. Yeah, no, he lost his seat, and the party still exists, but it's basically a vehicle for him. And he always had some like quite reactionary ideas. It was like a big effort for a lot of people involved to talk him into supporting gay marriage, for example. So he had like yeah. a bunch of like quite conservative ideas himself that they actually managed to talk entirely out of party policy and get the opposite in. So there was like actual effort going on, just absolutely exploded. Um, there's so much other shit that happened in 2014. Like right. it was our version of 2016, just like without you know the kind of racist demagoguery but and certainly in terms of just like being insane it was our like 2016 election kim.com uh so there's a guy here nikki hager who is an investigative journalist who's released a bunch of books doing exposés on stuff like political corruption he's a he has a book on um an anti-environmental campaign that the logging industry ran he's done a couple books with another guy john stevenson on possible and now close to admitted New Zealand war crimes in uh, Afghanistan um, as part of like our contribution to the war in Afghanistan are. So he did a book in 2014 called Dirty Politics that was a follow-up to a book he did in 2005 that coincided with that election called The Hollow Men, which was a book about how then leader of the National Party, uh, Don Brash, like got elected and the people involved with him and like all of the sort of shady dealing and where they were like getting money from and hiding it. And, you know, that, that's sort of thing, like kind of all of this kind of like a backroom stuff, a bunch of it kind of broke electoral law. 2014, he wrote a very similar book that was kind of a follow-up that went into how like national party figures were using right-wing bloggers to like run covert attack campaigns against people which in New Zealand would be kind of illegal because there was money, there was like possibly money changing hands, which would have broken electoral law. So like that came out and that was a huge thing. And then Kim.com tried to one up him by doing something called his moment of truth conference, where it was like him and a bunch of just like, he like 
guy out, I think, Auckland Town Hall, and he got like all the like journalists to show up, and he did like a flashy light show to go along with his announcement. And he released a bunch of information that was damning, but kind of already he didn't really release anything new. This was around the time when um, the National Party got caught out, like participating in domestic surveillance as part of the Five Eyes Agreement between like the US and, and Canada and Australia and the UK. Um, and that became like a really big scandal. Actually, the, that scandal is the thing that got me into the left. My first protest was against. No, uh, yeah, that the first protest I ever went to uh, was against the GCSB, which is one of our intelligence agencies, um, which had just been caught out uh, illegally spying on 80 New Zealand civilians. Um, the prob- very possible world where I became a libertarian instead. <laughs> but yeah, no, like 2014 was wild. But Maori Party, uh, sorry, Mana Party, dragging it back to the original point, was a genuine, large-scale, and for a short time successful effort at drawing together um, a tendency that was made up of the remnants of the left and, uh, like, Tino Rangatiratanga activists, like various land rights forces, like fighting for land rights for Māori. Um, and I've, like, argued for a while that there should actually be, like, a really, like, the left, we've got, like, a couple academic and sort of, you know, intellectual institutions, but, like, the left collectively need to do this deep dive into the mana party and what made it tick and why it fell apart besides the obvious of trying to shack ourselves up with kim.com for some fucking reason right uh money actually kim.com made to the internet mana party the single largest donation in new zealand history to like a single party independent working class organization okay cross-cultural cross-national international working class organization don't depend on kim.com you're not going to find a, some yeah. rogue billionaire. It's going to bail you I, out. I, well, I want. I would say we, but I didn't even. I honestly didn't even vote internet mana. I voted for a joke party called the Civilian Party. We had a platform that included um, abolishing all marriage that wasn't between one man and a volumetric flask. <laughs> like that's what it was like. A party that had like a whole bunch of really stupid shit like that. Wow, one of them was Independence from Hamilton, which is like a sort of one of the major cities that everyone doesn't like because it's kind of a fly-through city. <laughs> <laughs> the party leader was a uh, Golden Mayan branded pineapple All and right. was actually like on the party list. So That's... if you go into like electoral records, there's like a record for a candidate that is actually just a pineapple. <laughs> it was pretty good. But, um, Basically the ficus party. Ficus for Congress, except a party. Yeah, we had a party back in the day called the McGillicuddy, Soci- uh, McGillicuddy, McGillicuddy Serious Party that was like another joke party um, that... Uh, was kind of prominent in the late 80s and early 90s. Like, a lot of anarchists were involved in it. And they used to have, sh- they used to have like, this broad... They, like, developed this entire, like, uh, satirical theory called the Great Leap Backwards, and that they were going to, like, drag New Zealand back to feudalism. And they had, like, all this ho- massive policy platform involved in it. And I, like, occasionally meet people today who were, like, just starting to get politically involved back then who completely seriously promote the Great Leap Backwards... <laughs> And like, yeah, no, we've we've got to we've got to do that. We've got to do that. Um, but yeah, no, uh, feudal feudal Mao was a very funny, <laughs> very funny vision to go with. Paul they had a, a philosophy of mandatory homosexuality for one third of the populace, and you can't have sex for the rest. Which in the early nineties was a very very like controversial position because homosexuality had only been legalized a few years earlier. 
Jake, you got any last questions? Or are you uh, burnt out uh, over there on East or Eastern Time? Yeah, I'm. I'm just looking at like stuff on Kim.com now. I'm like trying to look at who this guy is. Motherfucker.com. <laughs> He's a mega upload guy. He's, yeah, yeah. Dude. Jesus Christ. I'm just looking at his Wikipedia page. So you're telling me that asshole fucked up like the culmination of everything we talked about today? I hope the mana wasn't the culmination because there were definitely a hell of a lot wrong with mana. But yes. <laughs> I would like to see something that maybe looks kind of like, you know, mana transcending all of its issues going forward. But, um, yeah, we, we can blame Kim.com for that. <laughs> Says him. Kim.com. <laughs> you so, dot, We're coming for you. Here's a sentence. Yeah. Uh, .com says that he is a legitimate businessman who has been unfairly demonized by United States authorities and industry trade groups. Uh, he blames former U.S. President Barack Obama for colluding with Hollywood to orchestrate his arrest and spoken out against his negative portrayal in the media. I don't know. I just thought that was a funny sentence. There was actually um back back in twenty fourteen, uh, when we used to have like a lot of right wing hit hit blogs, essentially. They kind of don't exist as much anymore. Um partially because a bunch of them got dragged into a whole bunch of lawsuits coming out of dirty politics. But uh back in the day when there was like all of them were doing like nonstop several times a day hit pieces on various people. Um, they did dredge up a completely real photo of Kim.com who is German posing in an SS helmet. <laughs> yeah. I can, That's I can it. believe it. <laughs> yeah. Kim. Not great. Kim.com is German. Yeah. Apparently. I don't know why I assumed he was Korean. Kim. Eh. Kim yeah. Oh no. This, this is like a, like a spherical white dude. Not to yeah. that shape. That is kind of a shape. It, it's it's not just, that I can a much, shape. To be honest. It's a shape. Yeah. Okay. Wow. It's a shape I'm getting dangerously close to, to be honest. <laughs> well, you too can ruin a uh, perfectly good, or can ruin a flawed um, socialist and indigenous support. Uh, you know, coalition. Then, you know, we can all aspire. Oh, Jesus Christ! <laughs> That's so. After talking about all this, hearing of that about Kim.com is positively exhausting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's a lot to it's a lot to digest. At it's some a, point it's a lot to take in. It's a lot at to take in. At some point when I actually have a steady income. Uh, I'm working two jobs part time, not many hours at the moment, but at some point when I have a steady income and can tr- contribute to the Patreon, I will make you read for an episode that Lionel Terry pamphlet. Oh please, yeah. Like <laughs> There's, there's so. We've hit a vein here. There's a lot interesting here. Um, I, uh, I've been talking to, uh, you might recognize him from Left Book, Tabita Chow. It's like involved in a bunch of progressive shit. It seems I don't really know what his deal is, but I've been talking to him about how, like, basically Lionel Terry's politics is minus the murder, um, is actually kind of just what the right in the U.S. are doing now. Like, you could easily read lionel terry shit and if you remove any slurs and like direct references to the jewish menace it actually just reads like a tucker carlson bit um yeah before like before the existence of the communist party of china too like we're fucking we're ahead of the world in ways that i'm not happy with but unfortunately i'm compelled by being 
you know, a researcher in history or whatever to, to figure out why and how. Well, I don't think our analysis of settler colonialism would be anywhere progressed as far along as it is, or, or even, you know, the slightest bit close to complete without the Kiwi perspective. So thank you, Tyler. Um, yeah, thanks for going on. We really appreciate having you on. It's, you know, it's always good to talk to you. Yeah, this is a, this is a peek into a world I was sort of completely unaware of, and uh, yeah, so it's definitely a very interesting uh, overlooked chapter in like the history of class struggle for sure. Oh, uh, you wait until you bring me on to talk about fucking class struggle in Australia. <laughs> oh, Christ! All right, you're on. Sounds good to me. And that's it for this week. If you'd like to support the show, check out our Patreon. If you want to get a hold of us, email us at swapsidechats at gmail.com. So until next time, keep your boots clean, your feet out of the swamp, and your head in the revolutionary clouds of tomorrow.